0: Okay. uh, If you have your Bibles, could you please uh, keep the Bibles open to the passage that is read to us? Uh, That is Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 to 24. And while you are still opening your Bibles, let me also express my gratitude to Pastor Joel and and the team of elders for having me and my family here. It's so good to, you know, see another local church and how uh, God has been working through the life and the ministry of this church. And uh, particularly, I was very encouraged to see six new members being added into the, this body this morning. It's so, so, you know, uh, so good to see that people are being added into the fellowship uh, here as well. So, so, yeah, very, very thankful to God. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I mentioned just now that uh, my family and I moved here in 2019. So it's been over three years Uh, since, you know, we have lived here. And uh, during our time here, people from India, my friends, my family members, they have often asked me, what is it like to live in the US? What is life like in the US? And I tell them in some ways, it's very similar. It's very similar that uh, you pay your bills, you clean your house, you go to work, you send your kids to school, you belong to a local church where you serve, where you, you, know, you belong, where you use your gifts, where you get you know, ministered by others, and you fight against sin and temptation. So life in the U.S. is very similar to life in India. But in some ways, life here is also very different. It's different in that uh, U.S. is very clean, and the noise pollution and the air pollution is certainly very less everything here is so big and spacious as compared to india everywhere everyone here seems to be very time oriented so every time i go for meetings i need to know you know i need to finish this meeting in half an hour and i can't just go on and on and, and be long winded <laughs> i i i have to be considerate of people's time and uh, i remember when we first moved here I had to remember to drive on the right side of the road. And uh, my wife, Julianne, often reminded me to follow the lanes and use horn only in case of emergencies. (laughs) And I still have to remind myself that uh, here in the US, texting is more appreciated than a phone call. So life here is similar. And at the same time, it's, it's very different. Well, this morning, we are considering One of the sections of Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's worth reminding ourselves that the Sermon on the Mount is all about how followers of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to live differently from the world. Like everyone else, we, those of us who have professed faith in Jesus, we still live in the world full of sin, suffering, and temptation. But as followers of Jesus, We ought to live differently and counter-culturally from the world. In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus tells us how we are to be different from the world. So in chapter 5, Jesus challenges us to be different in our moral life. Unlike the world, there has to be no hatred in our hearts, no lust in our looks, no lies on our lips, no leaning of our rights, and no limits of our love. That's pretty much chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel. And then in in the first half of chapter 6, Jesus challenges us to be different in our religious life. Yes, uh, we are to fast, we are to pray, we are to give. That's what Jesus commands us. But we are to do so differently from the religious Pharisees. Pharisees do it just for the sake of showing it to others. That's why they are called Pharisees. They are, you know, displaying their righteousness to show it to others, but we are to do so differently, Jesus says. And here in the second half of chapter 6, we see that we are to be different in our values and in our ambition. And this time, Jesus contrasts his followers not with self-righteous Pharisees, but with secular materialists. And like he does in these verses, Jesus talks a lot about our attitude towards money, and our attitude towards possessions. And what he says in these verses, the verses that, that have been just read to us, is so very crucial. Just think with me for a minute. Think about the area where we live. You know, we, we live in one of the wealthiest nations of the world. I live in Loudoun County, and it's been said about Loudoun County that the average salary per household in Loudoun County is over $130,000 a year. Over $130,000. And imagine you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of immigrants move to the US in order to live their American dream. Because they know that there is a lot of wealth, there is a lot of prosperity in this nation. Or think of all the shows and the songs and the advertisement that we watch on television. Think of what they teach us about uh, wealth and possessions spurred on by these things many people in this country live as if their net worth defines their self-worth and to complicate things further many prosperity gospel preachers says that if you come to Jesus you will be happy healthy and wealthy and therefore to those who are who live in this world and are to be different from this world that is his followers Jesus tells them not to be worldly, but to be loyal towards their master. That's the point of the sermon. And if you have a slide, you can see that it'll be on the slide that this is the point of the sermon uh, of the passage this morning. Don't be worldly, but be loyal to your master. Or in other words, Jesus' followers are not to be worldly. Instead, they are to show undivided loyalty towards their masters. Jesus' followers are not to be worldly. Instead, they are to show undivided loyalty towards their master. Now, Jesus makes this point using three different metaphors. In verses 19 to 24, we have the metaphor of two treasures, earthly and heavenly, two eyes, good and bad, and two masters, God and money. Three different metaphors, but they are all making the same essential point, that is to whom will I be loyal? Will I give my loyalty, my devotion, my heart to the Lord, or will I give it to the world? And we'll see in this passage that we can't give it to both. So in the first picture, Jesus says that there are two different places to invest, heaven or earth in verses 19 to 21. Now, of course, Jesus is not against investment. He's not against 401k. He's not against wealth. He's against treasuring and trusting in wealth. He's against setting our hearts and our hope on wealth. He knows that the earthly treasures may be alluring for a while, but they don't satisfy us for a long haul. And it makes no sense to invest in something that don't last. I mean, we all know that, don't we? We all know that looks fade. We all know that cars depreciate. We all know that computers fail or institutions fail. Markets melt down. Housing bubble burst. And clothes, they get old. And people, think about people. People, they disappoint. They can change their opinion overnight. And our jobs, they are unreliable. We may have them today. And in in, in a week's time, in a few months' time, we may not have that same job. And money and items that we cherish, they can be stolen or they can lose their value at any time. Thomas Watson once said that riches may leave us when we live, we may leave them when we die. Riches may leave us when we live, we may leave them when we die. So can you imagine how tragic it is to set our hearts on these things? But how can we possibly tell that if our hearts are captivated by these things? Well, ask yourself these questions. What do I love the most? Or what do I live for? Is it sex? Or is it sensex? Is it beauty? Or is it brain? Or ask yourself, what is it for which I am willing to compromise my convictions, my beliefs? Or what are my uncontrollable emotions? For some of you, it may be anger. Then ask yourself, what is it that causes me to respond angrily? For some of you, it may be fear. Then ask yourself, what is it that is causing me to be fearful? And as you do that, you will be able to find your functional God. You know, my family and I, we are uh, uh, about to vacate our house where where we have lived for the last two years. And tomorrow we have to vacate our house. And uh, as we are discarding a, a bunch of stuff that we have accumulated in the last two years, whether, it, whether it's books, whether it's clothes, whether it's, you know, other things, we have realized that, you know, how, how, you know, our hearts are set on those things. It was very hard for me to yesterday to discard some of the books that I gathered in the last two years. Because, you know, they became so precious to me. Even the shoes that, you know, i had been wearing for the last two, three years that we can't bring, bring those things back to India, we realized that, you know, we had to discard them. But it was very painful for me to discard those things. I realized that, you know, some of these things, even though they are necessary, but how often these things can become our functional God. But I think the issue in these verses is larger than locating our treasures. Jesus goes on to say that these things, the things that we treasure, govern our lives. Notice he says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have you noticed that when you are driving a car and if you, your eyes or your heart is fixated towards the right, if you're looking at you know, something, let's say a you know, deer is, is passing by through the field or if something you know, attractive is there on the left side, and you're driving a car, and you, know, you begin to you know, look at towards the right or the left, the car begins to wear in that direction. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying what your heart follows your treasures. So if you treasure alcohol, you will find yourself in the liquor store. If you treasure looks, you will find yourself standing in front of the mirror for hours and hours. If you treasure your work, your life, your schedule, your family, and everything about your life will revolve around your work. If you treasure lust, well, you will find yourself looking at pornography and looking lustfully at other people. If you treasure people's opinions, you will be governed by what they say. Now, the challenge is that uh, none of those things are bad. But the fact is that the good things can become bad things when they become the ultimate things. Thankfully, Jesus offers us an alternative in verse 20. He says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Notice Jesus doesn't say, don't store up anything. He doesn't say, don't seek treasures at all. He knows that all of us are treasure seekers by nature. We all have a treasure seeker instinct built into our very dna that's why our hearts are constantly on petrol constantly on the move constantly looking for things to satisfy us and jesus is saying here in these verses that go ahead and store up for yourself treasures but store these treasures for yourself in heaven now what does that mean what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven well stop and think for a moment. Who goes to heaven? It's people. It's people that goes to heaven. So storing up treasures in heaven means investing in people. Investing in them coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ so they can get to heaven and investing in them becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ so that they'll be able to enjoy heaven. In the last few months, as I've traveled to different churches and met different people, I have met some really, really neat people. People who have a lot of wealth, but they have utilized their wealth to store up treasures in heaven so that the gospel would be preached, so that people would uh, be benefited by the ministry of the local church. I have met people who have offered up, open up their home so that uh, missionaries could come and live in their home because they have this mindset of storing up treasures in heaven. And friends, you and I can also do that. That's what it means to store up treasures in heaven. Next, in verses 22 and 23, the Lord Jesus says that there are two different ways to see, with a good eye and with a bad eye. Now, it's helpful to know that in the Bible, a good eye is a reference to a generous eye. You can read those passages Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 9 and Proverbs 22 verses 9 and 10, they talk about uh, what it means to be a good eye. A good eye is a reference to a generous eye. And a bad eye is an eye that is evil, mean-spirited, and greedy, that covets others' property or uh, uh, you know, others' thing. It could be looks even. And I guess those of us who come from the East, they can easily relate with the concept of an evil eye. Growing up, I grew up in a Hindu home. And growing up, uh, you know, and the concept of an evil eye is a very, very big concept in India. Lots of people, lots of people spend a lot of money to ward off an evil eye. They would pay money to the charmers so that uh, the evil, evil eye would not covet their, uh, their uh, you know, their property or, or their people, people in the home. They would pay hundreds and thousands of, you know, rupees just Just so the evil eye would not uh, uh, w- would not you know have a bad effect on on them in fact, uh, I remember when I was growing up, my dad had a had a shop, and every Saturday there was a guy who would come on his bike and he would sell lemon and chili and uh, and an effigy of a dragon and this is what people would put right in front of their shop so that people from outside would not look at their shops and give them an evil eye. That's, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. This is, the, this is the concept. In fact, if you go to India, you will see lots of babies. You know, lots of babies. They would uh, uh, put, when, the, when a baby is born, they would put uh, a, a, a black thread and, and some trinkets around their, either their neck or around their waist so that uh, somebody who is looking at this beautiful, cute little baby would not look at him or her and, and give him an evil eye. That's what people do. You know, I, 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 and honestly, honestly, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably an evil eye that, you know, uh, that I, I look the way I look today. <laughs> I was born very handsome man, believe me. <laughs> anyway, my point is that there are lots of people who are so afraid of an evil eye that they are so afraid that they are willing to do everything possible to ward off an evil eye. And here in this passage, Jesus is saying, if your eye is healthy, we will be generous towards others because God has been so generous towards us. But if we have a bad eye or an evil eye, we will be envious towards others. So how do you know that if uh, if you have a good eye or a bad eye? How do you know that your vision is good or bad? Let me ask this question. How do you feel about people here who have more material wealth than you? Do you love them? Do you thank the Lord for them? Or are you envious of them? How do you feel about people who have less material wealth than you? Do you love them? Do you look down upon them and try to assign value to them based on, their, based on their income and occupation? You know, this is one of the ways we can figure out whether our vision is good or bad. But I think it's pretty uh, tough to self-diagnose if we are greedy or not. Tim Keller, who is a author, who is a, uh, who used to pastor a church in New York, he said that uh, it's... Uh, Uh, It's easy to discern if we steal something because we know stealing is wrong. It's even easier to discern if we committed adultery because we know adultery is wrong. But greed and materialism, they are kind of tricky. And I guess that's why so many Christians don't believe that they are greedy or that they can be greedy. After all, poor Christians can say, come on, man, what are you talking about? I am greedy how can you say that I am greedy? Look at uh, the car that I drive. Look at what I wear. Look where I live. I can't be greedy with the amount of money that I make. And rich Christians can say that, look how much money I give to charities and how much money I give to the church. I can't be greedy at all. But the Bible says something very different. It wants the poor to be desiring to be rich. uh, uh, Wants the poor to be desiring to be rich. And it wants the rich not to be arrogant and self-secure. It is possible that you may have uh, uh, less material wealth, and yet you can be greedy. And it is possible that you can be generous with the money that God has given you, but you can still have a wrong attitude towards the money that you get to keep. In his sermon on Matthew chapter 6, the passage that uh, we just read, Tim Keller mentions a story about a man named Robert Cain. And he gets this story, from a book called God and Mammon in America. It's a pretty fascinating story, you know, as I read this story. He, he says that uh, Robert Cain was a member of, a, of the First Congregational Church of Boston. And Robert Cain was doing pretty well uh, as a businessman. But in 1635, his elders, this church, disciplined him for the sin of greed. And how did they do that? It was because he was selling his product at 6% profit and the church had decided three or four years before that, that he and other Christian businessmen would sell their product for 4% profit instead of 6% profit. So when they found out that he was making 6% profit instead of 4% profit that the church had agreed to, they disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now you might be wondering, man, oh, where is this story going? This is a very odd story. And uh, what is he trying to you know, talk about here? Well, I'm, not certainly, I'm certainly not recommending this practice. I think it's very unwise and unhelpful to put such parameters in place to define greed. But I think one of the things that I liked about this story is that Christians in that body took the sin of greed so seriously. They knew that greed is blinding. Because, uh, you know... It, it, if it is left unchecked, it can lead to all sorts of problems. You know, I've got uh, glaucoma. Uh, it's a condition of an eye where uh, if you don't treat your eye, you can actually lose your vision. And greed is like that. If you don't treat the sin of greed, it can lead to all, uh, uh, eventually lead to other sins. And Jesus is saying, beware of greedy- greediness. Finally, Jesus says that there are two different masters to serve. Let me read verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The picture here in this verse is not that of an employment. The image is that of slavery. Because we can have two jobs And we know that employment is not that too consuming. But we uh, cannot be owned by two slave masters because slavery doesn't work like that. Either God owns you or money owns you. You can't serve both. Now, what does it mean to serve money? It's not that money has some needs that we fulfill. It's, It's not like that. No, to serve money is to shape our life to receive maximum benefit from money. It is to plan, it is to scheme, it is to strategize, it is to orient our life so much so that money becomes our ultimate identity, ultimate security, and ultimate comfort. And what does it mean to serve God? It means to shape and orient our life in such a way in order to receive maximum benefit from God. God, we, you know, our lives revolve around God, that everything that we do, you know, uh, would actually ultimately bring glory and honor to God. That's what it means to serve God. And Jesus is saying, you must make a choice. Either you serve God with a single-eyed devotion, or you serve God's substitute. Divided loyalty is no loyalty at all. And if you have doubt, well, ask your husband, or ask your wife. They will tell you what it means to have undivided loyalty. So let me ask you, as I'm about to close this sermon, where is your loyalty this morning? Who are you serving? If you're not sure, have a look at your bank statement and your organizers. Because how we manage our money and our time is usually a pretty good indicator of who we are serving, that's why Christian generosity is so vital. Not only because God uses money to further His purposes, but also giving regularly and generously for the uh, for the sake uh, for for gospel causes uh, shows that money is not our master. And on that note, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, that be generous with your money, with your time, with your resources towards the ministry of this church towards the ministry of this church so that the ministry uh, of this church would flourish so that the resources that God has given you would be able, uh, would be utilized to build a healthy local church in this area. And I pray that even as we do that, even as we strive to be generous with our money, with our gifts, with our talents, with our resources, our chief motivation would not be that God would bless us. That's not the right motivation. Our chief motivation would not be that we would feel proud about how much we give to the church. No, that's not the right motivation. The controlling influence in our generosity is the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that you know the grace of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. When we are generous, we show that we are just like our Lord Jesus Christ who emptied himself for us. And through his death and resurrection, he has freed us from the slavery of materialism. Now we don't have to live according to the ways of this world. We have a new master who has given us new desires and new affections. And he's the one who causes us to forsake earthly treasures and pursue heavenly treasures and riches. Friends, if you are here today and if you are a Christian this morning, this is your testimony by faith that God has given you new desires and new affections to desire and seek His kingdom, His righteousness first, then other things. And friend, if you are here today and if you are not a follower of Jesus, this is the life we offer to you in Jesus. This is the fulfilled life that we offer to you in Jesus. The Bible tells that that uh, we were all supposed to be condemned. We were all supposed to face just and righteous judgment of God because of our rebellion against God. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, has sent His one and only Son who lived a perfect life and who died on the cross on behalf of our sins. Now, if we turn away from our sins and turn toward Jesus, He will offer us life Life to the fullest. life uh, full of spiritual riches in him, R- uh, riches that neither moth nor rust can destroy. Riches that neither three thieves nor uh, thieves can break in or steal. He's the one who can offer you riches of forgiveness, Riches of uh, uh, being adopted into the family of God, Riches of uh, inheriting an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. And these are the riches that you can experience even now if you turn away from your sins and turn toward Jesus in faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for uh, reminding us this morning that uh, some things in your word are not gray. That there is a very clear dividing line between whom we should follow we can either follow our own self or we can follow our Lord Jesus Christ so Father we pray that by the help of your spirit would you again remind us afresh to follow you, to seek you and to long for the kingdom that is ours For those of us who have professed faith in in, in your son. We pray this prayer in Jesus name. Amen.